The Truth News Network. Washington girds for riots when a rally for justice is scheduled. The picture is clear. The people are a threat. The head of the National Institutes of Health calls political rallies super spreader events to discourage shirt sleeve workers from participation. But apparently the virus can tell the difference between restaurant goers and an enclosed birthday party of 700 or a checkout line at Walmart. A world gone mad needs clarity. And clarity comes from the truth and the clear voice is Dan Newman. That's me, folks. It's as clear as it can possibly be for me. And hello there, and welcome to TNN Live. For those of you new here, here's what we're all about. We're all about digging, researching, finding facts, and dispelling rumors. We'll occasionally bring you something that um, has just taken over the marketplace of ideas. Maybe we haven't yet been able to verify its veracity, or even verify that it's untruthful. But when it's out there and it's important or it looks like it is, we'll tell you, hey, here's what we found out about this. And we may not know for sure its validity. And if not, we'll tell you. This is out there. We're not sure it's right or it's truthful yet. We're going to continue our research. And if and when we find out it is true or it's not true, we come back and tell you, hey, you know that thing we talked about the other day? It really isn't true. Or, hey, You can bank on it. What we found out is true. So what a lead-in for our story, our lead-in this morning at truthnewsnet.org and here at TNN Live. COVID-19 facts. Fauciisms or scientific fact? Oh my gosh. I'm going to get ripped for this today. But let's get right to it. By the way, we have so many things to get into today. A lot of facts just flooded the marketplace of ideas yesterday afternoon and overnight. We're going to get to the important ones of those, and we're going to begin with what's really important for you. I grew up in South Louisiana. My dad was a pastor at a small church in a little town there. He was one of those preachers who left no room between what was good and what was evil. There was no acceptable gray area in his life, and therefore his son's lives. That would be me and my brother. There was no such thing as a little white lie in our house. It was either true or it was not. Now, we've heard excuses and probably told many ourselves that were really nothing but lies. I mean, we got to be honest sometimes, folks. Do you remember when somebody called for you at your house, maybe your brother or sister answered the phone, they put their hand over the receiver and said, it's Bill for you. And you immediately started waving your hands in the air saying, Tell Bill I'm not here. Well, that really wasn't a lie, was it? I mean, you could say, I wasn't standing here, which was right next to my brother or sister on the phone. So I technically was not here. I was across the room, so I wasn't lying. Well, folks, the reality is, if it's not true, no matter how insignificant or unimportant not speaking to Bill was, Telling the truth in every way, all the time, is of the utmost importance. After all, as my dad said many times from the pulpit in our church, the Bible says you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Folks, the truth is pretty darn important. Then this COVID-19 pandemic came along. 
It's not like our world was not already filled with debacle after debacle. It all seemed to occur at the same time. And that that happening was no big deal. We received another massive monster that required us, demanded we all alter every aspect of our lives at every level. And all the others with which we're struggling all the time. But the COVID God saw fit to drop that bomb on us. And it seemed that the truths of every part of it just vanished into thin air. But then, folks, we found out we don't need to worry. It was then, just in time, we met Dr. Anthony Fauci. All of our qualms, all of our concerns that engulfed every American just melted away. Finally, we had an intellectual epidemiologist at the helm to guide the U.S., the entire nation, through the accompanying maze of unknowns to lead us to the promised land of no more COVID. So we just all, I mean, we trusted our authorities. We just put ourselves in Fauci's hands. After all, Anthony Fauci is the most knowledgeable virologist slash epidemiologist on the planet. He'll give us all the facts we need, and he'll do it just when we need them. We were told that over and over again by who? By other experts. Then reality set in. And we're not going to put you to sleep by listing all of the lies here today that Fauci threw out for us to digest over the last year and a half. We've done it before. The list is massive and it grows in number every day. It's amazing to watch as millions of people continue to hang on his every word putting their lives and those of their family members in Fauci's hands based on all he tells us to do and all he tells us not to do. That continues, even in light of the dozens of lies that Fauci's given us as facts, only then later, sometimes 24 hours or less later, his facts are disproven by what? By real science and by real scientists. I was asked in a conversation with a close friend, I know Dr. Fauci has given us some misinformation on COVID that probably were just simple mistakes. But Dan, how am I supposed to know which things to believe that Dr. Fauci says about COVID? So my answer to him was this. It came from that same bard in my life who taught me the ills of little white lies, my dad. When a close teenage friend of mine told one too many lies to me, I asked Dad how to know what was true and what my friend told me going forward. Here's what his response was. Dan, to never be tricked by anything your friend says, you'd have to be able to discern which things he says are true and which are not. Obviously, it's impossible to know that answer every time. So don't believe anything he says. And certainly don't make any decisions based on anything he says to you. So let me ask you this. Does that apply to Dr. Anthony Fauci? So let's just launch into this. I have so many different pieces of information. It's critical that we get to them today. And... Let me, by the way, pause and tell you, if you've not been to our website cover page, truthnewsnet.org, this story is published there, and it's got a lot more details that we're going to have time to go through here today on TNN Live. 
But let me just give you a little piece of an analysis that was provided by the American Council on Science and Health. There are two fundamental points that are often ignored when referring to the death toll from COVID-19. There's no evidence or proof offered by any scientist, any pathologist or virologist that confirms COVID-19 as the cause of death in the certification process. Did you get that? There's no evidence out there. There's no proof offered by anybody that says absolutely positively any death that happens in any human can be pointed to COVID-19 as the cause of death. It's part of that process. But folks, you don't just get COVID-19 and die. It's a whole series of events that happen in your body. And the combination is not necessarily COVID-19 as the culprit. But nobody's telling you that. The CDC enacted an expanded definition of a COVID-19 death. They changed it on March 24th to include probable cases Now, this conflates and clusters test results, creating a source of both underestimation and overestimation. COVID-19 deaths are identified using a new ICD-10 code. And if you know anything about medical billing, everything that happens in medicine, everything, if it's a toothache, it's going to be given for treatment an ICD-10 code. Everything hundreds of thousands of situations in medicine. When COVID-19 is reported as a cause of death or when it is listed as a probable or presumed cause, the ICD-10 code for that is U07.1. This can include cases with or without laboratory confirmation. Now, where did that come from? The CDC, Centers for Disease Control. They changed the definition to what you just heard. All deaths of patients with a linkage to COVID are now classified as COVID deaths regardless of the cause or underlying health issues that could have contributed to the loss of life. Today, deaths from coronary disease, diabetes, morbid obesity, pneumonia may be linked or connected to a COVID-19 positive test result. The operative words linked, connected, provide little explanation of how they're related to indicate what the presumed link entails. So that bastion of medical prudence in journalism, the Wall Street Journal, noted this, tabulating deaths is tricky. Some states count probable deaths for cases where there weren't any test results available, but where the deceased had symptoms of the disease. Annual reports from the CDC, National Institutes of Health, confirmed that Americans continue to die from the same top 10 common causes. The leading causes of death, coronaries, cancers, accidents, lower respiratory diseases, stroke, diabetes, and Alzheimer's. The mortality numbers remain consistently about 2.8 million people a year. 
So all of this suggests a snapshot in time for COVID deaths. And for this investigation, we accept the CDC's data from January 1 to May 5th as the standard providing a date to engage the statistics without future projections or shifting definition. So what about the annual mortality statistics? Tracking those for COVID-19 involves a moving target of, listen to this, guesses, projections, revised definitions. Amidst an avalanche of expanding stats, we need to put American deaths into perspective. So listen up, here's some numbers. On average, 7,700 deaths occur every day from every cause in the U.S. That's how we get to the 2.8 million deaths per year. So without any data for 2019, the National Vital Statistics Survey estimates 25,000 more deaths in 2018 than in 2017, a statistically insignificant number. The death rate in America stands consistently at 0.8% annually. So to make broad estimates, and these are estimates, folks, every number we get from the CDC, it's somebody's opinion. To make those broad estimates, the CDC uses statistical models which it periodically revises. Like from 2013 to 2018, the CDC claims the flu annually caused 57,000 deaths and 42 million people approximately each year got the flu. Fatal complications from the flu may include things like pneumonia and stroke and heart attack. While the impact of the flu varies, the CDC estimates that the flu results in between 9 and 49 million cases of illness and between 12,000 and 79,000 annual deaths per year. Both of those ranges there are kind of broad, don't you say? You know, the first when people getting sick with the flu, somewhere between 9 million and 49 million. That's a pretty large range. And then regarding deaths, somewhere between 12,000 and 79,000. This enormous range is not unusual with CDC statistics because not all flu cases are reported. Flu is not always listed on death certificates. So in its annual mortality tabulations, the CDC combines influenza and pneumonia into a single category. This category typically averages between 51 and 56,000 fatalities, making it the eighth leading cause of death per year. An estimated 80,000 Americans died of flu and its complications in the winter of 2018, the highest death toll in 40 years. But counting the flu cases is problematic. The CDC was not sure of the exact numbers. Listen to this. Because flu is not a reportable disease unilaterally, state by state. Not every state even keeps up with their mortality rates with the flu. That that I just gave you comes from John Hopkins. Furthermore, flu, pneumonia, record-keeping is affected by fluid dates that even define the flu season. That may fluctuate from October to May or maybe from December through February, depending on the year. And the CDC arbitrarily picks every year what the flu season's going to be. Example, 
The CDC estimates between October 1st of 2019 to April 4th of 2020, somewhere between, listen to these ranges, folks, 24,000 to 62,000 people died of the flu. So we're talking about October, November, December, January, February, March, and four days of April. Six months and four days, somewhere between 24,000 and 62,000 people died of the flu. That just sounds medically factual, doesn't it? The CDC indicates that from January of 21 to May 5th, that's about 35% of this year, we had 751,953 deaths from all causes. I mean, that's a pretty specific sounding number. Wouldn't you think it's not 750,000? It's not 751,000, 751,953. Flu deaths accounted for 0.07% of all deaths. And that number is consistent for every year from 2013 through 2019. The standard definition of an emerging disease like COVID appears surprisingly loose. A cluster of characteristic symptoms, you know, like, here are the words they use. Flu-like, common cold-like, pneumonia-like, possible contact with a previous patient, and a test result of uncertain accuracy are all that's needed. I mean, they're grasping for straws to start placing labels on all these things that people are dying from. Researchers should find a segment of genomic nucleic acid in patient samples proven by DNA sequencing. And for some reason, they haven't done that. I wonder why. Do you think maybe it's convenient for them, it feeds into whatever there is out there to keep the mystery afloat? We're not sure But science tells us. Scientists and medical researchers, folks, real ones, admit they don't know how COVID-19 kills because it would require tissue samples from autopsies. The absence of that data hinders efforts to understand how the new coronavirus allegedly wreaks havoc. In a report in Nature magazine, Quote, we need those tissues to determine what is killing patients affected by COVID-19. Is it pneumonia? Is it blood clots? Why do they develop kidney failure? We have no clue, but they have the tissue samples from autopsies. Why don't they have the facts? That's a question for you to answer. With COVID-19, the underlying cause depends upon what and where conditions are reported on the death certificate. However, the rules for coding and selection of the underlying cause of death are expected to result in COVID-19 being the underlying cause more often than not. That sounds scientific, doesn't it? (laughs) No confirmation, ever, ever, it is the cause but it's expected to result in COVID-19 being the underlying cause more often than not. And by the way, of late vaccine data, 
vaccine data. There's a lot of data out there about vaccines, and we're not hearing much about that. It's conveniently ignored in public by the so-called experts. You hear Fauci talk about vaccine, uh, vaccine results? Have you ever heard him talk about the bad reactions happening from these vaccinations? Nope. How many times were we told by everyone in the COVID business, as quickly as the vaccines hit the market, get a vaccination. They're going to save your life. If you don't get it, you're going to die, period. 100 million plus Americans did just that. And now in some places in the U.S., American so-called breakthrough infections that turn into serious cases and lead to deaths more time than COVID cases in unvaccinated Americans. You heard Fauci talk about that? Nope. And then there are those, and, and I haven't heard anybody ask him about that. Have you noticed of late, Anthony Fauci, when he appears in public on Sunday shows, he never goes, never goes to One America News, Newsmax, or Fox. He's always on MSNBC, ABC, CBS, all of the in the tank far left news agencies because they won't ask him the tough questions. And then there are those expected adverse effects in people that were or are unexpected among the vaxxed Americans. In the early days after the initiation of vaccinations, Dr. Fauci spoke calmly about there being, quote, a few cases of those vaxxed, just like we experienced through the years from other vaccines, like the flu. He nor any other national medical expert ever warned us there would likely be massive adverse effects from the vaccines that would happen so quickly and so severely that they would sometimes cause deaths. So let me give you some numbers from the VAERS COVID vaccine adverse event reports that we follow weekly here at Truth News Network. This one's through September 10th. Okay, let me give you the numbers. Now, let me explain. This comes from, again, the VAERS website, which is part of CDC. The Centers for Disease Control, they follow these numbers. They post them on their website, and nobody in the CDC will ever get in front of a television camera and talk about any of these numbers. Why? Because they make the vaccinations look like crap. Now, the methodology is not totally inclusive of all of the reactions that happen. Why? Because the only ones they get are when medical professionals from the now, uh, professionals from around the nation send the information to the CDC. Estimates from the CDC are these numbers are probably only one-tenth, 10% of what's actually going on. So from January this year through September 10th, 14,925 reported deaths from vaccinations, 60,741 hospitalizations, 80,393 visits to urgent care centers, 110,839 reported doctor office visits, anaphylaxic shock, 5,959, Bell's palsy, 8,156 cases, miscarriages, 1,862, heart attacks, 6,637, myocarditis, pericarditis, 
5,765 permanently disabled Americans, 19,210. Thrombocytopenia, low platelet count, 3,025. Life-threatening reactions, 15,013. Severe allergic reactions, 28,168. Shingles, oh my gosh, shingles, 8,153 shingles cases. So let me ask you one question. Why is not this report, the VAERS report, it comes from the CDC, those are the COVID gods that Fauci is the number one COVID god of the CDC and the NIH, right? Why wouldn't they tell us about this? You know these numbers, every one of these conditions and deaths rolled in. From January 1 to September 10th, this happened. All of this combined and put in one bucket. Let's just talk about deaths, 14,925. Those are the reported numbers, the deaths, since January 1st. As the CDC tells us, for all of these adverse effects that come from vaccinations, it's expected the numbers are just 10% of the actual. That'd be right at 150,000, right? 150,000 deaths. When you put that in the context of all of the adverse reactions on all vaccines in total, since the CDC began to keep these numbers all the way back to 1990, if you roll every one of them in, 90, 91, 92, 93, so, 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 all the way through, there's a total up to January 1st of this year for every vaccine all combined, 1,900 deaths reported. And just for COVID-19 vaccines this year, 14,925. Well, I'm certain you heard the president's promise of a booster vaccine shot in February that's going to happen in September. Well, it's not going to happen. In fact, the book's still out, they say, regarding any firm date for the FBA approval of vaccine boosters for anybody. So what you did not hear, as in the Friday, September 17th FDA meeting, the only reported detail from the meeting was that only two commissioners supported the booster. But there were some significant elements presented to that meeting, the people there, that advisory panel, that were conveniently left out of the media reports, even from Fox News. The panel voted 16 to 2 to reject extra doses of what they termed in their official explanation, quote, experimental vaccines citing insufficient data from incomplete clinical trials and the potential risk of heart inflammation, especially among young men. That's the reason, folks. The vaccination booster stuff, the trials and the testing that had been happening by Moderna, by Pfizer, by J&J, didn't support not only the necessity or the need for the boosters, but the potential adverse reactions. The FDA hearing prior to the decision was stunning. The hearing was eight hours long. It included shocking testimony from some American doctors, like 
Dr. Joseph Freeman. He told the FDA on Friday that the government doesn't have data to show the vaccine was more beneficial than harmful to teenage boys. Dr. Freeman told the FDA panel he's not seen that those who show vaccine hesitancy are uninformed. Uh-oh. Anti-vaxxers may not be idiots. And this is from uh, a doctor, a virologist, an epidemiologist, one of the leading on the planet. He said, that's not what I've seen. The vaccine hesitant I've met in the emergency room are more aware of the vaccine studies and more aware of their own COVID risk than most of the doctors are. For example, many of my nurses, he said, refused the vaccine despite being more COVID deaths in their purview and devastation than most people have. Dr. Freeman went on to say he can't assure a nurse associate who is 30 that the vaccines are safer than catching the viruses for a healthy woman her age. And then Steve Kirsch, the executive director of the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund. He was up next to testify before the FDA. Kirsch argued the vaccines kill more people than they save. He pointed out that their patients were 71 times more likely to suffer a heart attack after taking the vaccine than those taking other vaccines. Talking about Pfizer. 20 died from the drug, 14 from the test placebo. Kirsch argued the vaccine killed more people than saved lives. He also pointed out that early treatments are more successful than boosters, noting the cases in Israel are at an all-time high and cases in Uttar Pradesh, India, where they administer ivermectin of all things. The cases are nearly non-existent today. Dr. Fauci, Dr. Walensky at the CDC, and other media-labeled experts are using their mainstream minions as never before to ramp up the COVID-19 rhetoric and fear. They tell Americans to do one thing today, and 10 10 days later, they reverse it often without even giving us any explanation for doing so. The president weighs in often with his COVID-19 scientific edicts with which he's instilled massive amounts of fear in our society that is ratcheted up immediately and persistently by his media lapdogs. They're, They're marching out every day telling us, get the booster, get the booster. And then you see the Emmys the other night where all of those enlightened Hollywood and uh, vax sycophants, no mask, no social distancing, but you know what came out? All of their assistants, the ones backstage, the ones that got them dressed and doing their makeup backstage, everybody but the people that were out front, those stars, television and movie, they all were required to wear a mask and they all had been vaccinated. They all individually and collectively had obviously agreed to in unison be the unified purveyors of the Democrat leftist COVID message, which is, listen to us exclusively, for we are the only ones that have a path to lead all Americans out of the COVID wilderness to a COVID-free life. And if you refuse to do so, you will die. What is happening? We know this much. We don't know the big picture yet. 
but we know there is a concerted effort to scare us to death. Fear has become the unifying tool of the left, and they're working it to perfection. What's the end game? Not going to go there. That's a story for another day. You probably read yesterday's story at Truth News Network, truthnewsnet.org. So what's ahead? Don't be surprised to learn some things that heretofore were labeled as conspiracy theories are discovered to be factual. Each of those will almost definitely be as bad or worse than initially thought. Don't be shocked if or when you learn that the vaccines are not what they've been portrayed to be and do not achieve the results as they have been marketed. In fact, don't be shocked to learn there are things in the vaccines that are deadly and in some cases more deadly than COVID-19 itself. So how can we discern what's true and what's not? There's no simple answer to that for folks. I can tell you, you just got to dig, 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 dig. So let me give you something that'll just blow you away. Overnight, I uh, I went back and looked at some of the stuff that we found and dug out over a year ago here at Truth News Network about COVID. And uh, I, I had put together a document with a bunch of different headlines with links to some stories. And this should blow you away when I start telling you what I found. And these are just some of the stories, and I'm not going to go into the stories. I'm just going to tell you the headline of what they're about. Henry Ford Hospital study shows hydroxychloroquine reduces mortality over 50% in early hospital use. Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, not one of those um, very, very far-right conspiracy theory institutions, right? Uh, And then there's Mount Sinai. They did a study that shows hydroxychloroquine associated with a 50% decreased mortality rate in COVID-19 patients at their hospital. Dr. Zelenko, you've heard him here at TNN Live a year or so ago, publishes a study of outpatient hydroxychloroquine use with 99.3% outpatient survival rate. 99.3%. French doctor Raoul. He reports only 0.5% mortality rate in 4,000 COVID-19 patients that were treated with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. And then there was a study that came out of Minnesota. It was anti-hydroxychloroquine. And boy, the far lefties, including Dr. Fauci, jumped all over it. Oh, we've, we've got this study coming out. Well, guess what? It was later found that study was nothing more than an anonymous online telephone survey. Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, he reversed his decision. He had banned hydroxychloroquine, its use for COVID-19 patients in Ohio. And the reason he did it was the results showed that it worked. Not in every case, but in early cases, it worked almost every time. The WHO coincidentally resumed a clinical trial study on hydroxychloroquine as Lancet Gate, which is a big scandal that came from some horrible reporting from Lancet, which is one of the go-to periodicals in medicine today, that had discounted some of the uses of hydroxychloroquine and its effectiveness. In South Korea, 
a trial in long-term care hospitals on the prophylaxis effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine was 100% protective in 211 patients over two months. And 30,000 deaths later, here in the U.S., we struggle to publish our first hydroxychloroquine prophylactic study. And I don't think I've ever seen one issued here. Another story, early treatment with hydroxychloroquine. Meantime, 5.6 days from symptom onset decreases both hospital stay and time to viral clearance compared to lopinavar, ritonavar, and remdesivir. Zinc shows to amplify efficacy of hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin treatment regimen in hospitalized patients. India expands prophylactic use of hydroxychloroquine after successful prevention studies, while U.S. is held back by politics and media gamesmanship. Media no longer interested in Florida after underwhelming death counts weeks after they reopened. You remember when they did that and everybody in Florida is going to die because they're uh, they're just coming back out, letting people go, and everybody else in the nation is locked down and going to save each other. You remember that? And it just goes on. And I, I mean, dozens of stories. And these most of these are from reputable institutions and reputable periodicals, folks. But the narrative seems to have changed. Would you agree? We're back on that. Oh man, you got to listen to us. You got to vaccinate. You got to listen to us. We're even talking about mask again. We found out the first go around, we found 47 laboratory control laboratory tested conducted under the auspices through the last few years by the CDC. 47 different tests. And it wasn't the CDC testing them themselves. They would uh, grant some laboratory here, some laboratory there to conduct these tests, made a lot of money from taxpayer payments. And these independent labs would come back with this conclusive finding from all 47 test studies. No mask in the marketplace. None effectively stops COVID-19 transmission. None. Not one. Not even the really high-dollar ones the ones that we can't even get here, that we were told that's the only way to stop it. Those don't even work. You hear Dr. Fauci talking about that? Nope. Touting mask, control. We're not even close to being done, folks. Don't go anywhere. I love going all natural. It just makes me feel better. Nothing between me and my 100% all-natural, juicy, grass-fed beef. Introducing the all-natural burger, the first ever in fast food. With no antibiotics, no added hormones, and no steroids. Only at Carl's Jr. What are you doing? 
Should we pick him up? He has Bud Light. He has an axe. But he has Bud Light. And an axe. I'm sure there's a reason for it. Hey, buddy. What's with the axe? It's a bottle opener. Hop in. Refreshingly smooth Bud Light. Always worth it. Look, here's Bud Light. And a chainsaw. Hey, what do you want to da-da-da? I don't know. What do y'all think we should da-da-da? Well, what did we da yesterday? Hmm, yesterday. All the dolls feel like the same doll these dolls. I know. Like, is today Monday or Tuesday? Today is Thursday. <gasps> oh, no, I forgot to call my mom on her birthday. Oh, no. No. These days, nothing is normal and everything is weird. But you could still save big when you switch to Progressive. That won't change. Not today or any day. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. and quiet, peaceful. That's what we need today, Tuesday, the 21st of September. Man, can you believe that we're just days away from fall? And you know what? We get that um, daylight savings time reversal in the month of October. That's the one where we get back that hour that we gave away in the spring. So let me tell you what that means. In regular day lingo, that means you're going to get to sleep an extra hour that particular Saturday night, whenever it is. I'm not sure what the date is. Anyway, a lot of things happening in the U.S., so many things, many on the far left are praying, hoping and praying that there's so much out there that some of these things just get left out of the conversation because they don't want us to have real conversations about them. This mass thing and social distancing thing. You know what happened yesterday? You remember the name Scott Gottlieb? Scott Gottlieb is the former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And he was on Face the Nation on Sunday. And in a conversation on Face the Nation, he admitted that that six-foot social distancing rule, you remember that, where we had to stay six feet apart because COVID knows it can't jump six feet, it can only jump five feet, ten inches. I don't know where that came from. Well, The commissioner of the FDA said he didn't know where it came from. He said that decision was actually arbitrary in and of itself. And he noted that nobody knows where the six-foot thing came from. He said, my view is that they were sold on the idea that you weren't going to be able to really affect the spread and that anything you did was just going to have so many repercussions in terms of impact on kids who might not be in school. Impact on the economy that the costs were worse than the disease, he said, explaining that schools were a perfect example of the lack of effective policymaking. So the single reason why most schools remained shut was because the CDC was telling them they had to keep kids six feet apart. If CDC has said you can only, you have to keep kids three feet apart, then a lot of schools would have been able to open. Think about that. In other words, you know, kids. We can't make kids stay six feet away from each other. But if the number was three feet, that's more realistic. I never thought about it that way. In fact, he said, when the Biden administration wanted to open schools last spring, 
They got the CDC to change that guidance from six feet to three feet. Now think about that. Isn't it supposed to be the other way around? The CDC reports to the White House and says, oh, hold on, guys. Science says, laboratory testing says, six feet is the magic number. No. Somebody at the White House picked up the phone and called Dr. Walensky at the CDC and said, hey, doc. We need you to cut that distance from six to three. Our people that, you know, teach schools and know about kids, they say that the six feet thing won't work. But three feet, kids are going to be okay. They can get within three feet of their buds. Dr. Gottlieb said the six feet was arbitrary in and of itself. Nobody knows where it came from. The initial recommendation the CDC brought to the White House was 10 feet. And a political appointee in the White House said, oh, we can't recommend 10 feet. Nobody can measure 10 feet. It's inoperable. Society's going to shut down. So the compromise was around 6 feet. Now imagine if that had leaked out into the marketplace, he said. Everyone would have said, this is the White House politically interfering with the CDC's judgment. You know what? When you hear that coming from the former head of the FDA, they're the place that everybody goes to to get the legal, here's what you can do, and here's what you can't do stuff every time. They're the ones that are supposed to go make a phone call to the White House and say, okay, guys, here's what the science says, and the White House uses their bully pulpit to put it out to the American people. In this administration, it's the other way around. Joe Biden says, follow the science. And what he means is, don't follow the science. Forget about the science. Look to the Biden administration. We're going to tell you. We're bigger. We're better. We're smarter than the scientists. But we're going to continue to tell you what we tell you is the science. That's really happening. It's happening today. So what are you going to believe? Who are you? Who are we going to believe? I got to be honest with you. And th- this is hard for me to say because I'm talking about the president of the United States. My fundamental position on anything this president says, if he says the sky is blue, I'm looking up to see if the sky is pink because I don't believe it's blue simply because he said it's blue, exactly opposite. And isn't that a horrible position to be in? And I honest, I'm honest. I really feel that way about this president. I don't see any truth coming out of his mouth, period. And that's really sad. We should not, no American should be in that kind of situation in any circumstance whatsoever. But yet it's happening. So in between the Met Gala, which was last week, and the Emmys, which was this past weekend, Bill Maher on HBO, he asked a question. Do the germs know who the good people are? (laughs) He's talking about the COVID germs. And the reason he asked that, he was watching the events like the Met Gala where the people going to the party didn't wear masks. 
but all the servers were wearing masks. Let's just make the help wear the mask. That's the liberal approach. That's Bill Maher talking, folks, and he is not a conservative in any way. And then at Sunday's Emmys this week, the only mask in sight seemed to be fixed on the non-famous faces in the crowd. Again, projecting a ludicrous class dynamic, class dynamic. And that particular one in Hollywood lets powerful people just opt out of standards that they seek to enforce on everybody else. We're the enlightened ones. Now, according to reports, this is on Monday because the media all began to just flood it with questions. What about the mask? What about the mask? And according to some of the reports, the Met Gala attendees were supposed to be vaxxed, tested, and masked because it was indoors. The Emmys mandated vaccines and testing as well. San Francisco Mayor London Breed, captured by The Spirit, she violated her own mask mandate during a concert last Thursday. One more prominent Democrat lawmaker in a long line of figures like this who've ignored their own COVID rules over the last year and a half. It's not about the optics. At work in what we're seeing, folks, is the same mindset that progressives like AOC purport to disdain when it comes to the form of tax loopholes. The standards don't apply to people in power so long as they have enough money or social capital to exempt themselves from the standards that they apply to all the rest of us. So confident are they in this power that they've amassed, they flaunt it on national television. They don't fear the unwashed masses. What are they going to do? Stop watching the Emmys? Well, we already did that. Uh, Once again, the ratings tanked. Refuse service work in states like New York and California? Maybe elect Republicans where there are none? And of course, AOC. Now let me say something about that gown she wore. I got to be honest with you, folks. She's, She's a gorgeous woman. And that dress, not what was on the dress, but that gown that she wore, was she really looked good in it. But her actions and policies neuter the working class. And she likes it that way. How do you know that, Dan? Because she flaunts it. Her fantasy of the working class does not include people who disagree with her, even indoors. She accessorized that tax-the-rich dress with her maskless face while the help scurried around and mask. So for Fox News, this was reported after the Emmys. COVID has become an excuse for the special flowers of our society to create a caste system in which their faces smile under their pancake powder and makeup while the little people labor under masks. If Breed, Ocasio-Cortez, and our class of red carpet activists believe the threat of spreading Delta is so strong that vaccinated people should still wear masks and social distance, it stands to reason they would personally obey these guidelines and mandates. 
It all boils down to a risk assessment. The public should follow these guidelines to mitigate the threat of mass hospitalizations and deaths. The guidelines, they say, mitigate that threat to the point where mandates are worth the cost of implementing them. And this raises four possibilities. All and each demonstrate the moral depravity of our quote-unquote ruling class. Either, number one, the mandate's costs are so burdensome, elites can't be bothered to follow them. Number two, they don't feel the mandates are effective enough to warrant their following. Number three, they're as callous as the hordes of toothless MAGA rubes that they theatrically decry as being imbeciles. Or number four, it's okay to exempt important people because their potential for spreading the virus is outweighed by our need for them to look hot and for them to party. And AOC looked hot in that gown, just saying. It's true, folks, the optics are bad. They have the very real consequence of worsening the very real class divisions that exist today. Divisions the ruling left eagerly condemned when it was more convenient for them to condemn. Still beyond the images, the hypocrisy reflects an emergency hierarchy that's incubated by the COVID-19 pandemic. The question is whether the powerful are right to assume that you and me, we haven't the intellect or the desire to find a way to push back against their hard-left lockdown mentality, lockdown for you and for me. They just don't get it. And about that San Francisco mayor, London Breed is her name. And boy, she got blasted for her night out partying, violating her own city mask mandate for masking, contending that people don't need to fund police to micromanage what they should be doing. Last week, she went to the city's Black Cat nightclub, spoke to the San Francisco Chronicle's reporter who spotted her there and observed that the Democrat mayor didn't have a face mask any time during the night, despite local restrictions, hers, which require everyone to wear a mask covering in indoor public spaces. Breed who had a table of drinks in front of her and was often holding one, spent the night dancing, a report says, singing along and posing for photographs with no face mask. At the time, Breed told that reporter that everyone in the venue had to show proof of vaccinations, which gave her a lot of reassurance. I've been careful, she said, the mayor, not just because I want to set an example, because I don't want to get covid the mayor's explanation didn't sound well, didn't bode well with her critics, though. They used the H word, hypocrisy. If she didn't wear the mask, then nobody has to wear a mask. Actually, I'm going to take mine off right now. That was Santo Esposito, the owner of Il Salantano, a restaurant that she was at and he was there. Breed, however, has addressed her critics, claiming she did, quote, 
everything I thought was appropriate. Now, I'm going to stop right there. That sentence, her explanation for violating regulations that she puts in place and the regulation says everyone, 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 and her saying that she did, quote, everything I thought was appropriate. How in creation does somebody elected to lead that's supposed to lead by example, expected to lead through common sense decisions, how does anyone justify putting out that lockdown egregious rule or regulation on everybody in San Francisco, but she feels like it's okay for her if she did everything she thought that was appropriate. You and I, we can't, we're not enlightened. We're not intelligent. We don't have the capacity to do appropriate things. The things that we choose to do aren't appropriate. And therefore that happens because we're a bunch of rubes, a bunch of rubes. And I got to be honest with you, Americans are weary of all of this leftist, this lockdown mentality, this we're better than you mentality. I got to be honest with you. I, I real, I read the real American history. I read all the stuff that happened. I read the bad and the good. I'm not one of those people that wants to just wipe out certain sections of American history because it was ugly and it was mean and it hurt people. I want it all out in the open. I want all the good, all the bad to be out in the open. I want to know everything about the Civil War. Who started it, who was involved, what its purpose was, what its results were, what its costs were. The War of 1812, the same thing. World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Iraq the second time. I want to know all of that. Because I want to learn. I want to learn from the good, from the bad. And I don't want anything to be covered up or hidden. I want it out in, out in the open. You know, little bitty facts just seem to leak out every once in a while that discount a bunch of the crud that's in the, the marketplace that's been thrown out there as factual information by many on the left and many other than those on the left sometimes. Example, Civil War. Oh, that was because white people wanted to keep slavery. That's the simple answer that you hear about it all. But what nobody wants to mention is that more than 300,000 white guys died in the Civil War to stop slavery, to end slavery. Nobody talks about that. And yeah, it's true. On the other side, we're a bunch of white guys. By the way, they were Southern white Democrats almost totally. That same political party that its public information and knowledge started and at the time was actually in operation, the Ku Klux Klan. It wasn't Republicans, folks. The very first Republican in the nation was the guy that basically started the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, and he started it to stamp out this thing that those white Democrats wanted to preserve. Nobody talks about that, but still 300 white guys died in the Civil War. There were another 300 that died, and I think most of them were white. But I think those were the guys on the other side that were trying to preserve slavery 
and didn't want to give African Americans the right to be just be a human and live as a human rather than live as a piece of chattel property as they had been. And so we can relate that now to what we're watching in our government regarding everything to do with COVID-19. Boy, that's a reach, Dan. You're conflating civil war. You're conflating slavery. And you're putting that in the same context in conversation with vaccine mandates, with mask mandates. It's all about power and control. And Americans, we're not going to take it in perpetuity. Americans are already speaking out in mass. I, we could we could sit here for 10 hours today and I could give you story after story, piece of evidence after evidence from real experts of all kinds in all kinds of fields, not just medicine, but social experts, environmental experts that can each discount with facts all this stuff that's happening right now. Now, we're going to go down to the southern border. There's some interesting things coming up there, so don't go away. We're going to get that in just a few moments. But I want you to listen to this. Alabama is suing the Centers for Disease Control over their vaccine mandate. Alabama. Now, listen to this story and listen to the Alabama Attorney General. There are now 24 states threatening to sue the administration over the vaccine mandate that it would include the state of Alabama. However, according to the CDC, only 41% of the people in Alabama are fully vaccinated. I want to bring in Steve Marshall. He is the Attorney General of Alabama and he joins me now. Mr. Attorney General, before we talk about suing the administration, I have to ask you, what happens to your state if you impose the mandate with only 41% of the people fully vaccinated? Well, sir, I think that we have significant concerns when you have labor shortages across many businesses, yeah. including on our healthcare side, that to the extent that this mandate is imposed, we're going to drive people out of the workplace and in fact create situations like we saw in New York where you're shutting down maternity wards because they can't find enough nurses to be able to staff that particular facility. So you are intending to sue over the vaccine mandate, correct, with all the other states? Oh, we, we clearly would. This is an administration that is exceeding what is valid federal law, a president that believes that the use of executive authority here is warranted when clearly it's not, and we stand prepared to be able to stand with my colleagues across the country to be able to challenge this action. So you're suing on constitutional grounds as, as opposed to just this would have a terrible effect on my state if you actually do it? Well, clearly we believe it's bad policy, but not only constitutional grounds, but directly the, the authority this administration relies upon, and that is an emergency rule within OSHA. Uh, we don't think it qualifies under the statute, and we've been very transparent in our letter to the president to be able to share why it's wrong and, and believe to the extent it's implemented uh, that we'll be successful in court. How long do you think it would take to get a decision? Well, I think it would be fairly quickly. This is one where we would seek conjunctive relief. I think courts have been known to act very quickly on this, but we'll not be surprised ultimately to see this case rise to the level of the Supreme Court. It's obviously one of national importance and one that we intend to assert the interest of Alabamians directly into this litigation. It's a complete political split. I believe the 24 states that are considering suing are Republican states and the rest are Democrat states. There's a political split here, right? 
Well, I think it's political in the sense you see it. And not only do we have 24 attorneys general on that letter, but we also saw Tennessee as well as Idaho weigh in on this issue. So it is uh, all the Republican attorneys general have been able to say very clearly that they believe that this is an illegal action and will be prepared to take uh, appropriate legal response to what the administration does. Attorney General Marshall, thank you very much for being with us today. We much appreciate it, sir. And please come thank back you. again. Yes, sir. The kind of pushback that you just heard there from the attorney general of the state of Alabama. It's just the beginning, folks. It's going to ramp It's going to ramp up. And we're going to see some of the stuff that we've watching from those across the pond of the east. You know, all the COVID stuff starts over there in Europe, Asia, Europe, and then it comes across to us here in the United States and Canada and Mexico. And it all happens over there first. So what's going on over there about vaccine mandates and vaccine passports and all those kind of things. Folks, every day, every day, every night in Paris, France and other places throughout France and other countries over there, their citizens are going to the street. There's actually almost war in the streets with citizens pushing back against these vaccine mandates. Now, why would people do that? It's because the vaccines aren't doing what they are supposed to do what we were told they were going to do, and in many cases are hurting a lot of people. It doesn't matter what governments tell people. Eventually, over a period of time, when the truth of those things come out and the things they're mandating, the people are smart enough to see that not only are they not happening like they're supposed to, but they're actually hurting people, in some cases killing people, They want to take a pause. They realize we're not getting the facts from our government. What we're hearing from them is not true. We need the facts. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That didn't just come out of thin air. It came out of the Bible. And I think the purveyors in the Bible, those that wrote the Bible inspired by God's Holy Spirit, they weren't in the tank for any particular thing at all. They were about the truth. And so you, you keep on your quest to find out what's best for you and best for those you love. You keep looking for the truth. Don't just believe anything that anybody tells you because they're saying it. Even me, don't believe Truth News Network necessarily just because it's us and the title's Truth News. Get facts for yourself. Talk to Dan. Call 1-866-37-TRUTH. TNN Live. The Truth News Network. New home ownership can be a real eye-opener, but it's the perfect time to look into Homeowner 101 from The Home Depot. Free live streaming workshops taught by expert associates. Now at homedepot.com slash workshops. You'll find indoor and outdoor workshops, even home systems workshops. Plus, you'll get the know-how you need to care for your biggest investment. Master the basics at Homeowner 101, only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Register now at homedepot.com slash workshops. 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 10. 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 10. Planet Fitness, through the use of motivating montage music, has made it easy to join. Just remember 10, 10, 10. For 10 days, sign up for $10 and pay just 10 bucks a month after that. Hurry, you only have until November 10th to take advantage of this Planet Fitness offer. 
Planet Fitness on 42nd Street next to Shopco. Nowadays, it's more important than ever to know the value of a dollar, or three, or four, or five, or even six. New Dunkin' Go-To's, now with brews. Tasty breakfast combos that give you more bang for your bucks. Get a wake-up wrap with sausage and a medium-hot coffee for $3. A bagel with cream cheese spread and a medium-hot coffee for $4. A bacon, egg, and cheese croissant with a medium-hot coffee for $5. Or a power breakfast sandwich and, you guessed it, a medium-hot coffee for $6. Dunkin' Go-To's, now with brews. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Exclusion apply. Limited time offer. You're fighting back the tsunami of ignorance with Dan Newman, TNN, the Truth News Network. Tsunami of ignorance. If you were president of the United States, if you were Joe Biden, what do you think an average day would look like for you? What would you be wrapped up in, caught up in? I, I don't know about Joe. I know about a lot of previous presidents. The, the last president before Joe worked a lot, did not sleep a lot. Uh, he uh, did a lot of public appearances, and many people on the left despised the fact that he made those consistent public appearances and speeches because they didn't like the things that he said. They didn't like anything he said. Of course, they liked what he did, but they didn't want to admit that they liked what he did doing everything he promised to do when he campaigned for the presidency. They all experienced the good effects of his economic policies, as an example. Down south, the border states, they loved what he did regarding illegal immigration because he stopped it on the most part. He stopped it, which kept the flood of illegals from draining the resources of California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. And so today... We have some more COVID stuff to talk about, but we're going to take a pause and we're going to go down to the southern border in the middle of this crushing wave of migrants. I don't even think we should use that term. That legitimizes people that cross the border illegally. So we'll just call it a crushing wave of illegals rushing to the U.S. That rush, as we know now, has overwhelmed our immigration agencies And guess what they're doing? Guess what the Biden administration is doing without telling America what we're doing? They are releasing numerous migrants, not just in southern cities, folks, but once again, deep into the interior of the country in a revolving door system that a lot of people are concerned is giving aliens a free pass into the U.S. Places they're going to, they're being sent to, Chicago, Denver, Minneapolis, New York City, Yakima, Washington, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. U.S. government contracted planes transport migrants from the border and into the custody of ICE throughout ICE's field offices around the country. And these illegals are often later released from those destinations and who knows where they go. So be looking for some tail words on some of these airlines. They're made by iAero Airways, which is a major government contractor. They also transport migrants around the country in the custody of Border Patrol and the Department of Health and Human Services for kids. The illegals released into the U.S. after taking these flights add up to at least tens of thousands of individuals. Tens of thousands. One of the most prominent ways these illegals are moved through the U.S. and often later released through the flights 
is by ICE Air, which is what the iAero flights for ICE are known as. That's even known and talked about specifically in that lingo among Border Patrol and ICE agents and the immigrant communities. They just call it ICE Air. It's a free ticket on ICE Air. But as you can imagine, those ICE field offices around the country are very limited in their capacity, and there are thousands of illegals streaming across the border every day. So what does that mean? Well, to solve the problem, former ICE Buffalo field office director, a guy named Tom Feely, he says that ICE headquarters pressures local field offices to then just simply release a large number of illegals to clear room for more people to come up from the border. And as more and more cross the border every day, crowd these facilities down at the border, headquarters will often come back and demand yet more releases. you got to get these people out of that office there in Minneapolis and Yakima, Washington, because we got to send some more there, so they just let them go. Feely said it's happening on a grand scale. They're getting pounded every day, fielding calls from headquarters about who they can release to make room for more people on the border so they can bring more people up here. And the following week, they're getting more calls almost daily again about who can you release to make room for more on the southern border. Mainstream media is not telling you this, but it's happening, folks. We're getting it from the inside, from people in these ICE offices around the nation. Now, the state that's been being hit the hardest, obviously, it's Texas. Texas, Governor Greg Abbott. I mean, he he is really, he's got a conundrum. He's right smack dab in an unsolvable situation. Everybody knows that especially the southern half of Texas and even more of Texas is predominantly Hispanic. A lot of Spanish-speaking people in Texas, even a bunch of Native Americans, hundreds of thousands speak fluent Spanish just simply because it was a territory of Mexico in the old days before it was made a state and brought into the United States. So Governor Abbott, he's got to walk a thin line there, but he's got to do the right thing. He swore an oath to the Texas people And that's pretty encompassing. It's all Texas people. But at the same time, he can't do something or he's not supposed to do anything that is unconstitutional and that doesn't support the rule of law. And I'll just throw this in for free. He's one of just a few governors that actually act on those commitments. So yesterday on the Ingram Angle on Fox News, Governor Abbott discussed a request for an emergency declaration over the situation at the border and said he hadn't heard, listen to this, he has not heard one time from President Biden during his entire presidency concerning the border. Now think about that. Think about what the federal government has been and is today and will continue to shove down the throats of Texans. Texas is spending billions of Texas taxpayer dollars, not the federal government, at cleaning up or trying to clean up every day the federal government's debacle of lawlessness that they are not only allowing to happen, the Biden administration on the watch of Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Excuse me. 
It's falling apart. And the things that Governor Abbott has tried to do to protect the citizens of his state, many of them, the Department of Justice, Biden's Department of Justice, are taking legal action to stop it. When Biden, he screams and hollers and he says, that's federal stuff. Constitutionally, the federal government has unilateral authority over immigration. And Governor Abbott says, well, why the heck won't you take care of it? And Biden won't even make a phone call. And it slipped out yesterday what the president's plans are for immigrants going forward. In May, he announced he would raise the refugee resettlement cap to 62,500 refugees for fiscal year 2021. In context, folks, 62,500, 62,500, that's more than four times the cap that President Trump imposed for the year at about 15,000 real, legitimate refugees. For fiscal year 2022, which begins October 1, Biden's making a little difference in his cap for refugee resettlement. From 62,500, he's taken it up to 125,000. In other words, he's doubling it. Interesting, huh? The cap is merely a numerical limit, not a goal for the State Department to reach. So here's what they're doing. They break it out by nation and region. Let me give you an example. For Africa, all countries in Africa, um, the 2021 ceiling set by Donald Trump was supposed to be 8,000. The Biden folks, for this year, they moved it up to 22,000. And the proposal for next fiscal year is 40,000. East Asia, under President Biden, uh, excuse me, Trump was 1,000. Biden revised it up to 6,000. And for next year, 15,000. And it just goes on and on like that. Specifically, the State Department is going to allocate the most refugee spots for Africans and foreign nationals from East and South Asia. About 10,000 spots will go to Europeans and foreign nationals in Central Asia. 15,000 will be allocated to Latin Americans and those in the Caribbean. In addition to increasing refugee resettlement, Biden rescinded an order that allowed states and localities to decide whether they want refugee resettlement in their communities. The order, which was signed by Trump, of course, gave Americans veto power over the program that they, for decades, had been shut out of. Over the past 20 years, about a million refugees have been resettled across the country. This is a number more than double that of residents living in Miami, Florida, and would be the equivalent of annually adding the population of Pensacola, Florida, to our country. And so what about the bucks? What about the dollars and cents? Refugee cost American taxpayers $9 billion every five years. That's according to research. Each refugee costs taxpayers six-figure money, folks, about $133,000 over the course of their lifetime. Whether they produce any income, whether they add to the nation in any economic way or not, Within five years, an estimated 16% of all refugees admitted will need housing assistance paid for 
by you and by me. Interesting, huh? So, with all of the concentration on the vaccine mandates, I mean, it's really, really getting bad. They're ramping it up. They're making it even tougher and tougher and tougher. So, they're mandating for pretty much every employer in the nation that they can. 100 employees or more. You got a vax. You got a vax. So when reporters asked about a apparent double standard yesterday in the White House press briefing on vaccination requirements, Jen Psaki, circle back Jen, she argued that illegal immigrants and migrants crossing the border, they were being asked, well, if, you've, if, if you're requiring Americans to be vaccinated, why not require these illegals to be vaccinated? That would make sense, especially since you're pushing them out around the nation and we have no idea if they have COVID or not in most cases. Jen had a brain surgery type answer. You're going to love this. Why would, the question is, why would the president require any employers at all to make their employees be vaccinated and not require illegals and refugees, I mean legitimate refugees like the ones coming out of Afghanistan, why not require each of them to get a vaccination? Because the federal government's paying for vaccinations anyway. Jen thought for a second and she made a, I mean, a brilliant statement in response. Quote, they're not intending to stay here for a lengthy period of time. I don't think it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. So in other words, what you do if you have COVID and you're a refugee, you've got a pause button on your side, right above your waist, right side. So you can just simply reach down and for as long as you're going to be in the United States, you just push the pause button and that means I don't have COVID. And then when you leave, wherever you're going to go, if you want to, you reach down and turn the button back on. That, folks, is the stupidest thing I've heard come out of Jen Psaki's mouth. But what's even more stupid is the fact that obviously there are policies being made by this government based on that exact philosophy. It's okay because they're not going to be here very long. This is crazy. Ah, we got we got more stuff. We got some Afghanistan stuff. I did you know that uh, Antony Blinken, Secretary of State, he has been in front of uh, the House and Senate committees answering questions about this Afghanistan thing. I've got two segments, folks, that are going to blow your mind. Antony Blinken being grilled about specifics regarding. Everything to do with Afghanistan, not just about a thousand or so Americans still being held behind enemy lines, but other things in this thing. Don't go in right after this. We're going to listen to Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Today on Hey Culligan, softer equals 
better, here's a tweet from Ed Itchy in Idaho. Hey, Culligan, my laundry is so scratchy, I just cut myself on a cable-knit sweater. Any suggestions? Hashtag send help. Hey, Ed Itchy in Idaho, yes, the Culligan high-efficiency water softener will make that thing so soft, it'll go from cable-knit to cable-knot. Itchy. Hashtag soft laundry. Hashtag already on the way. Get started for as little as $10 a month for six months at participating Culligan dealers. If you think we're just four wheels in a grill, think again. The Jeep Grand Cherokee redefines freedom. But what really makes Jeep? It's finding the perfect balance between luxury and adventure without ever compromising. It's driving across the country to see your family, to make new memories. So, what makes Jeep? You do. Jeep. There's only one. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. With Ford Pass, rewards are just a tap away. Whether it's using rewards points toward things like complimentary maintenance or for vehicle accessories. And with Ford Pass, a tap can also get you 24-7 roadside assistance and lock your vehicle. Only Ford Pass puts all this in the palm of your hand. Ford Pass, built to keep you moving. When it comes to online meetings, you're crushing it. But if you want to crush something that's a little more fun, why not play Best Fiends, the five-star rated puzzle game? Best Fiends is loaded with challenging puzzles that are so much fun. And you're never accidentally on mute. So take a stress break with the cutest characters on the planet and download Best Fiends for free from the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Play Best Fiends. Download free. song came out American Woman that was a oh my gosh that was a wicked song and man it had a greasy sound to it you heard that guitar playing there that was a Les Paul they were made and still make greasy sounds when you play songs anyway so you're a sitting member of the US Congress either in the House of Representatives or you're a US Senator and um the big thing that you do in Congress besides passing legislation, crafting new laws and negotiating to make things best as possible for the American people. In addition to that, you've got oversight over different departments of the government. You're the watchdogs over the administration, any administration. So what do you do? When things don't quite go the way they're supposed to go, you're going to ask the folks that are involved, especially at, at the management level, the top levels of these departments, like the State Department, to come sit down and you're going to ask them some questions. You're going to swear them in. They're going to have to uh, swear an oath to tell you the truth. So, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, it's his turn on the hot seat in Congress. And boy, he made the rounds. I think he's going to continue for most of the week to do just that, answering questions, principally about what happened in Afghanistan. Now, let me put this first audio bite in perspective for you. It seems like there was some communication before the withdrawal even began to happen about what probably or what might happen in the case of a withdrawal by the Americans, our military, being taken out. 
And so when you get that kind of thing and it passes through different hands in the administration, in this case, you've got the military and, of course, you have the State Department. There are so many moving parts in a big deal like leaving Afghanistan after 20 years of being there. So everybody's got to kind of get on the same page. But somebody has to make the ultimate decision. Now, in the four years of the Trump administration, nobody ever wondered who the go-to decision maker was in pretty much every big important decision. It was always President Trump. So when you look back over the last 30, 45, 60 days about our withdrawal from Afghanistan, you would think that there was a process where the big guy, and of course I'm speaking about this president, he is known in the Biden family syndicate as being the big guy. The big guy is the one that everybody thought would be making decisions. One member of Congress He was not going to stop. He was going to make Secretary of State Antony Blinken answer a question about a couple of things and about the president's direct role in making some decisions. Here's Blinken in Congress yesterday. Uh, Mr. Secretary, let let me return to the dissent cable. You said you read the July 13th dissent cable prepared by the career diplomats at the Kabul embassy. Uh, You said you're very proud of that. Is that, again, correct? Uh, That is correct, yes. And that warning came um, over one month before the fall of Kabul, right? Uh, The cable was, I believe, um, on July 13th, yes. July 13th, so over a month. And the cable warned that the Afghan government was at risk of collapse, and your response was, quote, the thoughts of the drafters reflected much of the thinking of the department, unquote. And, and you still maintain that to be the case. The, the, uh, the cable did not uh, predict that the government or security forces would collapse before we departed. Well, but, but the cable did say the, the Afghan government was at risk of collapse, and you said that, that the thoughts of the drafters reflected much of the thinking of the department. By the way, at the exact same time, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research in the department was briefing this committee that the Taliban was moving quickly toward a takeover of the country you presumably had access to that same intelligence from INR, which corroborated the dissent cable and was alarming to many members of this committee. Do you dispute that? As we've uh, had an opportunity to discuss uh, throughout these many months, uh, there were ongoing intelligence assessments about the durability, resilience of the Afghan government. Well, look, I mean, let's, let's just be honest, Mr. Secretary. These were alarming cables. They were warnings. There were warnings to you. You said they reflected they reflected the majority of position of the department. Did you share this intelligence with the president of the United States? Two things on the uh, on the cable, uh, Congressman. First, uh, the, the 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 main focus of the cable was on taking steps to expedite the well, efforts we were making to bring out uh, the uh, SIV uh, applicants uh, and others from Afghanistan. And Several why was that? Because it was, the collapse was imminent. Did you share that intelligence with the president? It did not say that the collapse was imminent. It expressed. Well, why did you accelerate the process? It, it, because it expressed real concerns it about did, two things. Because we no. got it too. We saw it too. We knew this was totally avoidable. Did you share that intelligence with the president? Did you, uh, did you advise him for a shift in strategy as a result of this intelligence? Again, this is not, this. first of all, it's not intelligence. It's 
information analysis assessment that's very okay. important coming from our from our embassy. INR uh, is intelligence, and the cable was analysis. Did you share it with the president? The the dissent channel, uh, that, which is a an important, very important tradition in the State Department, under its regulations, is shared only with the senior leadership. The question. You're not but, answering the question, but I want to know if you have a shift in policy, and if not, why not? Uh, I want to know if the president contemplated shifting any part of this strategy when it was very apparent that this strategy of, of unconditional retreat was failing, and it was failing over a month before the fall of Kabul. Let me uh, on Bagram real quick. In April, I warned you not to abandon Bagram. Little did I know the Biden administration would abandon it even before evacuating all Americans, our allies, and advanced military equipment, leaving the, the, the world's most dangerous airport, HKIA, as the exclusive point of extraction. Who made the decision to abandon Bagram at that time? Uh, Congressman, as you know, uh, the military was engaged in a drawdown from Afghanistan, uh, and part of that drawdown was moving out of uh, different positions to include Bagram Air Base, which was given to the Afghan Security and Defense Forces. You're, you're telling me that the military, the military advised evacuating Bagram before you, you extracted all Americans in the equipment? Or was uh, that a State Department decision? Uh, we, we, cert we certainly did not make a decision about Bagram. Uh, the military uh, is charged with doing the, uh, the planning uh, and the work uh, and any drawdown. Uh, okay. And they make decisions. They make decisions based on uh, force protection and the security of our men and women in uniform. You say uh, that you say that they, to do that. Okay. You say that there, there's nothing the Chinese would have wanted us uh, more than to stay in Afghanistan. Is it your testimony that, that the, is it your testimony that the Chinese wanted the United States to remain in the only air base in the country with a physical border with China? You th you think that that's the Chinese position that they wanted us to keep Bagram? The I think the Chinese would have liked to have seen us remain in a re-upped war in which oh, so, we were under attack, in which we were putting Mr. more and more forces in Afghanistan. In which you we think the Chinese are celebrating us? You think the Chinese are celebrating us abandoning an airbase, the largest airbase on their border? Come on. The gentleman's time has expired. Just, just be honest. Just be honest. I yield back. The gentleman's time has expired. Oh, my gosh. Come on, man. <laughs> Can you believe that? This is the highest number one diplomat in our government. I mean, let me ask you this. You remember Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo was President Trump's Secretary of State. He formerly was the director of the CIA. He was on a lot of shows a lot of the time and was asked all of the hard questions. And he was on a lot of non-conservative shows all the time. He appeared before numerous committees to testify about a bunch of contentious things during the Trump administration. Did you ever hear Mike Pompeo struggle like that and simply refuse to answer questions that are significant? It never happened. He always responded in intelligent, understandable responses that as they were tested, and remember who he was talking to, he was talking to a bunch of people that hated him simply because he was Donald Trump's Secretary of State. Even some Republicans piled on Mike Pompeo about things that happened on his watch. And it should be. Anytime there's anything that happens, it's not. it shouldn't be 
politically involved. It should be based upon what's best for whatever that situation is. Blinken would not even say if Biden was involved at all at the decision about withdrawing from Afghanistan and he was asked again and again by this member of Congress, did the president know about that cable that said, maybe this pullout is not going to be a good thing to do, that the Taliban is going to overrun the Afghan government very quickly and maybe we should rethink that. He never would answer that question. So, another member of Congress, a little bit later, kind of gave Blinken a breather, and uh, then he brought out something that I've wondered about, and I'm sure you probably have too. Have you noticed in multiple appearances by Joe Biden, at some point in those appearances, usually after he gives his prepared remarks, you know, the ones that he can actually get out of his mouth intelligently, intelligibly because of reading problems from his teleprompter, how all of a sudden he maybe gets asked a question and his microphone is cut off. It hadn't happened once. It hadn't happened twice, three, four, five. It happens all the time. So everybody wonders what the heck is going on there? Is that something that, uh, you know, is planned And that falls in line with questions that even we ask here at Truth News Network, and many of you have asked us, who's running the Biden administration? Who's in charge of all the things that he says, all the things that he does? Oh, and by the way, who is the one that's in charge of turning his microphone off, hitting the button to mute him when he's having a conversation? So here's Secretary of State Antony Blinken. And this is the conversation. Who the heck is pushing the button to shut the microphone off of the president? Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, uh, Mr. Secretary, I can tell you, I've I've listened to you and a handful of other people try to put the best face on this possible. And I can tell you that the temperature of the American people is not there with you. And that, I'm not talking from a partisan basis. This, This goes both ways. You know, there, there is not enough lipstick in the world to uh, put on this pig to make it look any different than what it actually is. So I, somebody need, we need, the American people want to know who's responsible for this. So let's start with this. Who is responsible? Who made the decisions on this? Was it the president of the United States? Uh, ultimately, uh, the president makes the decisions. That's correct. Did he in this case? As, as in every case, ultimately decisions that can only be decided by the president are decided by the president. Well, in, now, of course, uh, to, be, to be specific, uh, uh, Senator, there are hundreds, thousands of decisions uh, every single day uh, that go into a, a situation as complex as this one. The big strategic decisions, those are decided by the, by the president. The tactical, operational decisions are made by, uh, by different agencies, agency heads, uh, agency officials. Well, I'm more interested in, in the top decision-making. Mm-hmm. Look, we've all seen this. We saw it as, as recently as yesterday. Somebody in the White House has authority to press the button and stop the president, cut off the president's uh, uh, speaking ability and sound. Who Simple is question. that person? Simple question. <laughs> I think anyone who knows the president, uh, including members of this uh, committee, knows that... Uh, <laughs> He speaks very clearly and very uh, deliberately uh, for himself. Uh, no one else does. Well, are you, 
Are you saying that there's no one in the White House that can cut him off? Because yesterday that happened, and it's happened a number of times before that. It's been widely reported that somebody has the ability to push the button and, and cut off his sound and stop him from speaking. Who is that person? There is, there is no such person again. Uh, the president uh, speaks for himself, uh, makes all of the strategic decisions, uh, informed by the best advice that he can get from the, uh, the people around him. So are you unaware that this is actually happening? Because it happened yesterday at the uh, interagency fire center. Uh, it was widely reported. The media's reported on it. And it's not the first time it's happened. It's happened several times. Are you telling this, are you telling this committee that this does not happen, that there's no one in the White House who pushes the button and, <laughs> and cuts him off in mid-sentence? That's correct. So this didn't happen yesterday, nor on the other occasions where the media showed the American people that his sentence was cut off in mid-sentence. Yeah. Are you saying that didn't happen? Senator, I'm, I really don't know what you're, uh, what you're referring to. All I can tell you is, uh, having uh, worked with the president uh, for now uh, 20 years, both here uh, on this committee uh, and uh, in, uh, over the last nine months at the White House, the president very much speaks for himself. Well, let's take a different attack. He does speak for himself, but what happens when somebody doesn't want him speaking? You're, you're telling us you don't know anything about this, that, they, that somebody cuts him off in mid-sentence. Is that what you're trying to tell this committee? I'm because everybody here has seen it. Senator, I'm telling you, based on my own experience uh, with the president over the last 20 years, <laughs> anyone who tried to stop him from saying what he wanted to say, speaking his mind, uh, would probably not be long for their, for their job. <clears throat> Let's turn to the dissent cable that you received in uh, July. Are, are you willing to give a copy of this dissent cable that you got from two dozen diplomats regarding the imminent uh, uh, catastrophic collapse in uh, Afghanistan? Are you willing to give a copy of that to this committee? Uh, Senator, this, this dissent channel is something that I place tremendous value uh, and importance on. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a way um, for people in the State Department to speak the truth as they see it uh, to power. Uh, and these uh, cables, I've read every single one of the, of the dissent channel cables that we've gotten during this administration. I've responded uh, to every single one. I factored what I read and heard into, um, uh, into my thinking uh, and, to, and into my actions. But the legitimacy of the, of the channel, the ability for people to be able to, uh, with confidence, uh, share their thoughts, uh, share their views, even when they run counter uh, to what uh, their, uh, their seniors uh, have said or the policies being prescribed. Uh, it's vitally important that we protect that channel, protect its integrity, uh, and it is designed by its very regulations uh, only to be shared with senior officials uh, in the department. And what I don't want to see uh, is some kind of chilling effect going forward uh, that says to those who would think of writing a, a cable in the future that uh, this, uh, this will, uh, you know, get out widely, be, uh, be distributed uh, in ways that, um, uh, that, would have that, uh, that would have that chilling effect. Do you admit that you received a dissent cable in July signed by two dozen diplomats that warned about the imminent colla uh, catastrophic collapse that was coming in Afghanistan? Senator, I certainly uh, received this, uh, the cable in, uh, in mid-July. I read it. I responded to it. I factored uh, its uh, contents into my, my thinking. 
And what the, uh, the cable said broadly uh, is, was two things. It did not uh, suggest that the government and security forces were going to collapse prior to our departure. It did express real concerns about the durability of that government and force after our departure, and it focused on the efforts that we were making, particularly on the, on the SIV front, uh, to try to expedite moving them out. And in fact, a number of the recommendations, the very good recommendations it made, were already uh, in train. Others were not, but one of the ones that was in train was the establishment of Operation Allies Refuge. We received the cable on July 13th. That operation was actually put in, uh, into force on July 14th. It had already been planned for some time, and this was an effort to expedite the um, identification and relocation of SIVs, actually putting them on planes, which, as you know, is not part of, uh, of the program, actually relocating them uh, and working to establish transit sites so that we could put them there while we finished processing them. Well, you see, that's the problem with us not having access to that cable. You're telling us that, but we have uh, been told by others that it was, it was significantly different than what you're saying. Uh, also, we really would like to see the response to that because I think history is going to be uh, interested in that particular cable and uh, your response to it. Um, wow. So we're listening to the Secretary of State, which is the highest diplomatic position in our government. The President first, Secretary of State second. And we're hearing where this guy can't even come forward and acknowledge that something that millions of people have seen, watched it, listened to it happen, which is where the mic button, somebody pulls the plug on President Biden answering questions most of the time, sometimes pulls the plug on things that he's saying, and Blinken can't even answer that. Now, let me tell you, what a diehard sycophant he is for the far left. He was Hillary Clinton's go-to number one person in her State Department when she was Secretary of State. He was the guy that was directly over what happened when the Benghazi thing happened. Now, what do you mean he's the guy that was directly over it? That night, when it became apparent in Benghazi at that consulate there that there was really some big, big-time trouble that was about to happen... And they reached out to Washington, D.C., to our State Department at home to get some directive asking for permission to move. They spoke to Blinken, Antony Blinken at the time. Blinken was Hillary's number two person. And uh, when it really broke out and got out of hand and there was significant damage being done and shooting going on, and obviously all of those people were in harm's way, and they got desperate, it was Blinken that made the recommendation to CENTCOM for the military not to intervene. And we know what happened. Four Americans were slaughtered. Our ambassador to Libya was dragged through the streets before he died. They were all slaughtered because our military didn't ask. Well, who was the director of CENTCOM? Lloyd Austin, who is now our Secretary of Defense. So there's a lot of history there. He talked about, Blinken did at the, uh, excuse me, the congressman did at the end, about history wanting to know about all of this stuff that went on in Afghanistan. It'll all come out later. And I tell you, when it quacks and waddles, it's always a duck. In this case, you can book it. Blinken knew that somebody at the White House 
had the authority at certain specific times and were taking orders probably through a headset about things to do and when to pull the plug on Biden because everybody knows when he has an open microphone with no directive, no script, he's a loose cannon. (laughs) Nobody wants the real Joe Biden to step out on the stage at any one time. They want to keep him leashed so he doesn't mess things up. Wow, this day is racing by. There are so many things that we need to talk about. Do you know what the latest is on travel and vaccines for us all? Nobody really covered this yesterday. I'm sure it was mentioned somewhere, but I didn't hear anybody cover it in television news. The U.S. is going to require adult foreigners that are coming into the U.S. to be fully vaccinated for COVID beginning November 1st and forward. All foreign visitors are going to be subjected to that requirement, period. White House Coronavirus Coordinator Jeff Zents added travelers must also provide proof of a negative test no later than 72 hours before they boarded to come here. In other words, you got to be vaxxed and you got to prove you don't have COVID. Once again, if you get the vaccination, you're going to be safe. You're going to be fine. If you don't get it, you're going to die. So you got to get it. Well, if they got the vaccine, Jeff, why would they have to provide the results of a negative test? Because according to Joe Biden policy and Dr. Fauci edicts, if you get the vaccine, you're not going to get COVID. Again, those were lies. Now they're dealing with the reality that it doesn't work all the time. They're going to drop that former quarantine requirement and the move effectively ends an 18-month blanket ban on foreign travelers from entering the country. Now let me put this in context. You've probably heard me say on the show before, I have an attorney that does some work for me internationally and has for several years um, in Switzerland. And that attorney has a daughter that's enrolled at the University of Santa Barbara going to college. The lawyer went to, when when, uh, she was much younger, went to University of Santa Barbara. And so it's kind of a family thing and her daughter's going there. Think about the issues that that causes. Typically, kids go home for Christmas. Foreigners go home. If they're in the United States going to college, they'll go home for Christmas. Usually a two-week thing in between semesters. Well, her daughter couldn't go home because uh, her daughter won't be able to go home because she won't be able to get back in because they don't believe in the vaccination. Just another egregious stupid policy coming out of D.C., which is not, regardless of what you hear, it's not based on science. So what else is happening? Another story came out. This one from a far-left university, Harvard Medical School, in conjunction with Tufts Medical Center and the Veterans Healthcare System. This study shows that COVID-19 hospitalization numbers in the U.S. are highly exaggerated. And the report says that almost half of hospitalized patients only displayed mild symptoms, suggesting that they were likely admitted due to reasons unrelated to COVID-19. 
With widespread vaccination, the current definition of COVID-19 hospitalizations includes progressively more mild or incidental diagnoses, for example, cases identified prior to surgery or prior to discharge, rather than hospitalizations because of severe COVID-19. You remember the story that we had here 15, 16 months ago coming out of Sinai Hospital in New York? A doctor very upset about the reports of COVID-19 deaths happening in his hospital. He told the story of one man, elderly man, that came to the hospital. He had broken his leg, had a bad leg break. And he had, after they fixed his leg, it was one that required him to be an inpatient there. After they fixed his leg, he had an adverse reaction to something. I don't remember what it was, but he ended up dying in the hospital. He wasn't even tested for COVID, had no symptoms for COVID. His official cause of death was listed, COVID-19. The study pointed out that with routine and often mandatory COVID-19 screening testing of everybody that comes in, the number of hospitalizations caused by the virus may be substantially overestimated, it said. In a pediatric population, 41% of reported admissions associated with COVID were for reasons other than COVID. Rates similar to those found when the simple definition of moderate to severe disease was applied. Both pediatric studies, which have already been peer-reviewed and published in May of this year, reached similar conclusions. One claimed that most kids hospitalized who test positive for COVID were asymptomatic or had a reason for hospitalization other than COVID. The other study concluded that 45% of admissions were categorized as unlikely to be caused by COVID. So all of a sudden, the facts are coming out. The facts are coming out, and the facts are pointing to most of what we've heard regarding everything about COVID-19 that's come from the so-called medical experts. Most of it's not true. And we have been and are today making life-changing decisions based on this stuff that we're being told this is factual. These are the facts. You remember when all that money in that big, 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 big bill, that spending bill that was tagged to be for COVID-19, but a huge number from that money that was being spent, more than a trillion dollars, was going to assist these red states and red cities governed by these big Democrat governors and mayors, and they were in trouble, not because of COVID, but because of their horrible budgetary process, and they were all upside down, millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. We said they're going to find a way to take that money and divert it. Well, guess about one. Listen to this. California, they got $316 million worth of homeless COVID relief. It was allocated to them. $316 million. In an audit that happened to Governor Gavin Newsom's state housing department, and guess what they found out? All $316 million was spent, but only $2 million, 
$2 million of the $316 million taxpayer dollars that you and I paid, by the way, only $2 million, supposed to be $316 million, only $2 million of it went to the homeless problem in California. <laughs> it's, it's hard to accept, it's really hard to believe, but it is really happening, and it continues to happen. Extreme waste, partisan thuggery, and it's not just exclusive to Democrats, folks. Many people that serve in this Congress, and I hate to say it, but they like to spend, and they don't like to tell truth about it. That's a wrap on Tuesday, folks. Stay close. We're back tomorrow, 9 a.m. Central.